we have been led to believe that if we're successful, it will equal happiness. But what if I looked at the model differently and said, if I'm happy, it would equal success. And so when I kind of came to that insight, I was like, okay, well then what if I start with looking at what my definition of happiness is and what makes me happy and realign my life towards that and see whether success can be a byproduct. And so when I asked myself what makes me happy, it was only a few things. It was human connection. It was positively impacting the lives of others. It was being present and in a moment and it was sharing experiences like what we're doing today. Yeah. And so I was like, well, that's a compass. I can use that. I don't know anything else in terms of where I'm going to go, but I can use that as a basis to at least take one step at a time in a direction that is towards that. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders, game-changing influencers and next-level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your host, CEO and founder of Energy to Perform, international speaker and leadership performance coach, Craig Johns. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, I speak with an internationally acclaimed TEDx and keynote speaker, educational innovator and creator of the intentional adaptability quotient a world-first hacking happiness measurement tool and educational program. She has an MBA in marketing and management from Swinburne University and has held numerous volunteer roles at organizations such as Big Brothers, Big Sisters Australia, Indigenous Community Volunteers and the Smith Family. Her career has included managerial roles in marketing and commercial at Shell been a board director at Big Brothers Big Sisters Australia, co-founder of the F-Bomb Show, activator at SheEO, and faculty member at Singularity University. I'm honored and privileged to introduce you to the CEO of HackingHappy.co, one of Australia's most influential female entrepreneurs and a passionate entrepreneur who has partnered with prestigious brands such as Google, Microsoft, and Deloitte. Penny LaCasa. Penny, welcome to the show. Oh, wow, Craig, you've done your homework. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me. So uh, I'm just sitting here and I'm really enjoying your backdrop. And it's not just one of those virtual back, um, backgrounds that we're seeing a lot online, but you've actually got this beautiful window and outside is the farm. So I'm curious, now that you're in a farm, what, where did you grow up? Did you grow up on a farm? Did you grow up in the city? What were, what, what did you start? I grew up on 140 acres um, in a place, well, in two places, Cranbourne and Pakenham, and both of them are now satellite cities, you know, in two of the biggest growth corridors in Melbourne. But when I lived there, they were rural communities. And um, yeah, I grew up on a farm surrounded by horses, cattle, dogs, brothers and sisters, and uh, a hell of a lot of freedom. Yeah, beautiful. And I think now that I've opened up the can of worms and talked about you being on a farm at the moment, so we, we find ourselves in, in a really challenging and interesting year, but you're actually, you're from Melbourne at the moment, or you have been living in Melbourne, but you're actually on the farm at present. So how did that come about and you know, what's life like for you at the moment? Oh, yeah, I'm, 
love sharing this story because I just feel like I'm so grateful for the opportunity I've been given. So I have a home in Melbourne in um, uh, just, you know, just outside of the city. And uh, basically we went into lockdown in March and then we came out, I lose track of time. That's the thing about this lockdown situation. You don't know where you're at. And so I think we came out, it must've been end of June. And then we went back in, it felt like three weeks later, it must've been in July. And what happened in that window of time was it was school holidays. And I had um, these amazing girlfriends of mine who have this beautiful property, um, an hour out of Melbourne that backs onto the state forest. And they said, look, we've just come out of lockdown. We're gonna head off to Byron Bay in a camper van with the kids to get away go and stay at the farm and have a holiday for a week. And so we came down here for a week and then lo and behold, lockdown two happened. And the girls said, well, we need someone to stay at the farm and look after the animals. It's gonna shut down again tomorrow night. Would you wanna do that? And we don't know when we're coming back. And it was one of those moments where I was like, oh, can I do this? Like, you know how, and I just thought, you know what? I'm just, screw it, I'm gonna do it. And so, we basically packed up what we needed and myself and my 10 year old son landed at the farm. And like I say, that was back in July. And at the moment we're here until end of December um, at the earliest. And uh, it has just been an absolute gift. Yeah, you, you were talking about, and, and sorry for those who are currently living in, in lockdown or you're in Melbourne, but you're talking earlier before we went online around having that opportunity at lunchtime to go out and explore the forest and go on different hikes. How, how, does, how is that different from, what the, from the life that you had prior to COVID arriving? Oh, <laughs> like most, but my life is fundamentally different. So um, I love the work that I do, but what it meant pre-COVID was that pretty much every second week I was on a plane somewhere. And, um, you know, it could have been somewhere domestically or internationally. I traveled a lot. Um, and so therefore going for a hike in the middle of the day in the state forest was not even, was not even possible, um, even if I wanted to. So I spent a lot of my time traveling. I spent a lot of my time in corporate offices or on stages with large audiences, you know, um, speaking or running workshops. And um, then when COVID hit, of course, like most people, and you would appreciate this, that all just overnight, it just stopped. Yeah. I'll never forget because I had, I had one of those wins that was like a dream. It had been a long dream and it was to speak at the Atlassian Summit in Vegas. They invited me. Wow. And it was the week after COVID shutdown happened. And so I was all set to go to Vegas and that got, so, you know, and everyone's got a story of something that was mm. taken away, you know. And, um, and so, yeah, that was what life was like, but it's so funny. I don't miss any of it. And, and I didn't, I loved, I loved my life then and I love my life now, but what this has given me is a perspective on a different kind of balance. And it's made me realize um, how much more joyful life can be when you are connected to nature on a daily basis. And having the freedom, like my son and I, because I've been homeschooling him, I think for most of the year, and I'm a single parent. And so we set the alarm every day at 12.30 and um, we basically pop on our hiking boots and off we trade somewhere into the forest. And that's kind of the decompress to reset for the afternoon. And I cannot tell you, I think I work less hours than I have in a long time. 
but I'm way more creative yeah. and I'm way more productive. Ooh. And I think it's because my brain's recharging more often. It certainly is too. You know, we, 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 we will drain our batteries all day and then try and recharge at night. But if we get that opportunity during the middle of the day to recharge, you know, what an impact that has on your, your as you say, your creativity, your productivity, your performance levels in the afternoon can go, th- can really step it up. If you, if you do get that break outside in nature, get the body moving, get the energy recharging again. Yeah. And the conversation, the other thing I would say is um, my son and I have always been close, but it's shifted. This farm has shifted that relationship in a way that I never imagined. Um, The conversations that we have when we go on these walks and the things that we talk about, because we are completely disconnected, there's no technology on the Mm. walk. um, And, you know, and, and it's a regular thing. It's just been fascinating. And, and like I say, I, I smile thinking about it. We have so many fascinating conversations and he has so many questions about life given the age that he's at that just come up and I get the opportunity to be completely honest with him and tell him the truth about, you know, whatever it is that he wants to know, which has been fascinating. What a blessing, what an absolute blessing. So we'll go back to when you were a child and growing up, you know, what did you find yourself dreaming about the most uh, kind of as a teenager or even even younger? What did you want to be and where did you want to go in this world? I'd say when I was under the age of maybe 14, I always dreamed of being a fashion designer. So I love clothes and um, I wanted to design fashion. And then I think when I got to high school, and you could start picking subjects and things like that. Um, my brain sort of immediately went to um, this idea of studying criminology, and I always, I don't, I never have regrets. But I, I could, I could go back right now and study criminology, and it definitely links in many ways to what I do now. Not the criminal piece, but it's just another way of looking at human behaviour, yeah. and I think that was the beginning of me realizing that human behavior fascinates me and understanding why some people operate in a certain way and others operate in another way and some people find it easy to make change and others find it really difficult that was kind of the beginning so that was yeah that was what i wanted to be a criminologist so from a criminologist you end up in a career in corporate (laughs) in marketing and management and you do an mba in in marketing and management as well. So what happened? What happened along the way? I was a dropout. Oh. I was a failure. <laughs> and proudly so. So what happened was um, when I turned 18, I, I actually applied to study law. And so I got into law and um, spent the first year uh, studying law. And I was like, this is so boring. This is just so you know it was just basically going through old cases and precedents to substantiate arguments around why you would do certain things it just was not what i thought and so after 12 months i was like this is just not for me and so much to the dismay i'm sure i mean look mum always said do what makes you happy even from a young age but um i think it was more that i didn't stay the course that disappointed her than anything else like that i'd given up so i dropped out after 12 months and i um, I was in at uni in Tasmania. I went over there and then came back to Melbourne and decided that there was no way I could live at home um, because I was just desperate to get away from the farm that I'd loved as a child um, and ready to live in the city. So 
I moved to the city and I was like, well, I need to get a job. And so I started nannying, would you believe? And so I, because it was, a, it was good money and it was a way to get a job quickly and I had no skills. And I suppose that was the brilliance of growing up on the farm. You know, you, you learnt to work hard. You got a real, I had a really good work ethic. I've always had a good work ethic. My brother and sister are the same. And so I've never, I've never ever been precious about saying a job is below me or, you know, any of that. And so I would always do what was ever, what was needed, you know, to, to sort of move along. And um, I knew that there'd be skills built no matter what the job was. And so I started as a nanny and then I was like, well, maybe it would make sense to try and get a job in a company um, where I could build some professional skills. And I didn't want to go back to uni because I was having way too much fun in life. I was only, you know, 19 years old and I was living in South Yarra, which is a great part of Melbourne. So I started applying for jobs like at the absolute base level. So like admin jobs. I was a photocopied girl. That was like the first job I got. I was relief reception and the photocopy girl at an um, air traffic services company. And um, that was kind of the beginning. I kind of got a taste for... Um, I suppose, corporate life. And I was like, you know what, this could be good if I could find the right company that kind of believed in me um, and could see my potential and would support me in developing a career. Who knows what that could look like? And it was kind of stepping stones. I think I jumped like to three different jobs. I, I went to NEC after that. And back then e-commerce was just starting out and they bought me into an e-commerce business that they were starting. And so I got some skills, even though I was in administration, I got some skills that no one else in the market had. So when this job came up at Shell um, at the age of 22, they were looking for someone with e-commerce experience and they couldn't find anyone. And I applied and I didn't know it was Shell at the time. The job ad was very um, discreet. And when I applied and went into the interview and then got the job, I was like blown away. And I'll never forget it because the salary was double what I was on, right? I think I was on like 20 grand back then. This is a long time ago. <laughs> and the salary that they advertised was 40,000. And my ex-husband, bless him, um, I said to him, oh, well, maybe I should just ask for like 30,000 because I don't want to be greedy, you know? It's a big jump. <laughs> he said, why would you do that? You, he goes, you asked for the 40, that's what they're offering. And I did, and of course they didn't even negotiate and they gave me the 40 grand. And I'm, like, that was probably one of the greatest lessons to have at the age of 22, especially as a female, because we know females are not good at negotiating on salary. That made me realize that I was just as worthy of that money as anybody else. And I kind of took that through my career. So that was how I started, that's how I got into corporate. Yeah, so, so obviously incredible experience working at a, a huge multinational like Shell at such a young age and, and doing something that realistically not many people in the world knew how to do so what what was that experience like you know were you accepted straight away was it kind of like floundering in this massive big ocean or did you just fit right in oh. massive imposter syndrome massive and i'll never forget it because i kept thinking to myself there was like they were talking about concepts in meetings that I was in because like you go into an organization like that and they, they speak a different language like Shell had a whole book of acronyms right and <laughs> what happens is most people that are at Shell have been there a really long time so everyone speaks in acronyms and so half the time like the first six months is just trying to work out what people are actually saying and I just thought they're going to turn around like every night I'd go home and I'd think I'm so lucky I'm so lucky and then I thought to myself 
they're going to work out really quickly. I've got no idea what I'm doing. And someone's going to go, you know what, there's the door. Um, but the reality, I mean, I know now, but it's like, gosh, you never want someone to walk into a job that completely can do it and nail it because they'll be bored within three months. You, yeah. you want someone who's going to grow and develop and have that, that passion to learn in a job. So I know that now. I didn't know that then. But um, it was completely overwhelming when I started, even as someone who is confident. Um, but... I have to say, it was an amazing place to work. And I always said I'd never stay in a company longer than four or five years, because I was like, oh, you'd be stale if you did that. But the reason I was there for 16 years was because every sort of two years, I kept getting tapped on the shoulder and it's like, hey, we think you could do this. Brilliant. And it was always something I never even thought I'd be capable of. And I'm like, but I haven't got the skills or I, I don't know how to do that. And they go, come and try it. And so they were so good at supporting people and pushing them into um, discomfort in a way that enabled them to realize potential that they couldn't even see that they had. Mm. Um, and so I had, I never begrudged my time at Shell. I met, I got to work with really amazing people. Like they were renowned for employing very smart people. Um, that was probably the one thing that I realized when I left, when you surrounded constantly, you know, by these geoscientists and geophysicists and, you know, their grad program used to recruit the best of the best. You feel very average, you know, because <laughs> you're surrounded by, you know, a lot of intellect. And um, it was funny when I left because people were like, I'd, I'd go and start doing things in my entrepreneurial career. And, you know, I'd meet with these other female entrepreneurs and they're like, how do you know this stuff? Like, how do you how do you know this stuff? And I felt really valuable. And I was like, I always felt like I was average in shell, but the problem is that the pool of intellect is just so massive. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I never begrudge it. Amazing people, amazing opportunities, um, amazing, gro amazing growth and development, you know, huge investment in, um, in my potential in terms of the programs that they used to send me on. It was an amazing place to work. Mm. Brilliant. So you, you, here you are, you're working for uh, this huge company, Shell, and you had a, a great experience. But you kind of, you found yourself at the age of, I think, 39, and you can correct me if I, if I have it wrong, where you found yourself with everything that you'd aspired for, yet feeling really unfulfilled. Can you share with us what was going on at that time? Yeah. Um... People always say to me, was there a light bulb moment before I made the massive change that I did? And I always say, for, for me, it wasn't a light bulb moment. It was more like a dimmer that gradually turned up. Mm. And so um, I, I'd kind of been led to believe, I think, in the way that I'd grown up and the way that I'd kind of lived in society, that if I ticked a series of boxes in my life, I would one day magically arrive at happiness. Yeah, it's like when you have all of these things, you know, you will be complete. And it's not like anyone said that to me, but I think that we're kind of conditioned around a societal definition of success. Yeah. And many of us never challenge that societal definition of success. A lot of smart people I know don't challenge it and they kind of, they, they, they go ahead and tick all the boxes but they're sitting there um, more often than not unhappy um, or unfulfilled or feeling like they're longing for something. And so what happened was um, at the age of 39, there was a series of, 
um, there were some events in my life um, that occurred. Um, I had my definition of success with my uncle Don, um, and he was a very successful entrepreneur. He'd been a doctor who then went and decided to become a property developer and he built these massive medical centers all around Melbourne. Before that was even a thing, you know, like back in the day, it was just your little GP in a house down the road. So he kind of started that um, and he was kind of the one, the family on the pedestal. And then um, one day we got a call and uh, they had found that he had committed suicide off the edge of the Frankston Pier and um, in hor horrific means, you know, he bolted chains around his neck and weighted himself down with dumbbells. It was just, the whole thing was surreal. And um, I was very close with him. My mother and my grandmother were two of his biggest investors and none of us saw it coming. Um, and basically he'd lost everything, which was why he'd taken his life. And he'd obviously tried to punish himself by the nature of the way that he did it. And that was probably the beginning of this dimmer getting turned up because I sat there when that happened. And I was like, if this is success, it sucks. Mm -hmm. And if this is my, like, this is what I've kind of modeled my success on in terms of my aspirations. And maybe, the, maybe there's something wrong with this picture. Um, maybe, all of these things that I'm seeing as success don't make people happy. And then obviously there was a number of things in my career that I just started to notice that didn't sit right from a values perspective. And the funny thing is, I always thought, I look back now and I think to myself, I don't think it was that they weren't there before. I just think I just became so much more aware um, of what was going on because of the questions I was asking myself off the back of my uncle's death. Um, and so it took three years from when my, sorry, three, no, two years from when my uncle passed away to when I completely turned my life upside down in pursuit of happiness because um, I just could not sit there and ignore what my intuition was telling me. Wow, very, very sad um, story, but obviously it, it has provided you an opportunity um, to, to, to make a massive difference in the world. So when you started talking about finding your happiness, did Hacking Happy come along like straight away or was it something that evolved over time? Uh, how did that come about? Yeah, so when I was at that turning point, the most poignant question I asked myself was that if I feel that there is a problem with the definition of success, I need to rede redefine success on my terms. And I was like, well, in order to do that, I feel like the equation's back to front. We have been led to believe that if we're successful, it will equal happiness. But what if I looked at the model differently and said, if I'm happy, it would equal success. And so when I kind of came to that insight, I was like, okay, well then what if I start with looking at what my definition of happiness is and what makes me happy and realign my life towards that and see where the success can be a byproduct. And so when I asked myself what makes me happy, it was only a few things. It was human connection. It was positively impacting the lives of others. It was being present and in a moment and it was sharing experiences like what we're doing today. Yeah. yeah. And so I was like, well, that's a compass. I can use that. I don't know anything else in terms of where I'm going to go, but I can use that as a basis to at least take one step at a time in a direction that is towards that. So I was like, well, there must be a company out there that can help me do this. Um, and 
I was like, basically what I want to do is hack my happiness. Yeah. And, and when it's a hack, it's like, I don't know what the path is. I don't think there's going to be a perfect plan. It's really going to take for me to experiment and work this out and see where it takes me. And so there was kind of no one out there that hacked happiness. It was not kind of a thing six years ago. And so that was kind of where it started. And I was like, well, I've got 20 years experience in large scale change. I love helping people realize potential. What if I could create an organization that could help people define happiness on their terms and then give them a methodology or a navigation system to actually enable them or empower them to experiment with bringing that to life. That was how Hacking Happy was born. But it took me, I reckon, it's been six years now. I think it took me probably really pushed to about four years before all of it kind of crystallized. And, um, and I was like, that's it. Like now it kind of makes sense. And I know what that, that methodology and that navigation system is going to start to look like. Yeah, beautiful. So, so it's interesting when I look back at my life, I've always, for me, everything I've done is because I love it. If I don't like, if I don't love it anymore, I stop doing it. And I'm like hundred percent, I'm either all go or no go. <laughs> and my things were always, how can I, how, how can I solve the problem of people and, and help them be happier, healthier and hungrier for success? So it's kind of interesting. Like even I think back to that, I'm actually aligned, like quite aligned with what you're thinking about here. But what I find in the world is so many people really struggle to even identify what happy is. They don't know why they're happy or how they can be happy. So what have you learned so far that can help people in understanding what happiness means to themselves? So the first thing I would do is I would come up with your own definition of happiness. Define it. So not what makes you happy, if that's too much of a struggle, but how would you how would you define it if you had to explain it to somebody who didn't understand it? And so I did that. And it's like I was saying, like we're led to believe that we'll arrive at this magical place of happiness. So we sold happiness as a goal. Yeah. And what I've realized is that happiness is not a goal. It's a way of being. It's not an end state. It is a practice. It's about the mindset and the behavior that you apply in the everyday. And if you can look at happiness like a practice, yeah, it makes it front of mind. And the more often that you practice that happiness in each day, the more likely you are to have days with more of it in. Now, the reality is you're never gonna be happy 24 seven. And I don't, it's neither help, healthy yet, yeah, or is it possible? Because how can we experience happiness if we do not know pain? And so the definition based on my experimentation and the work that I've done that I came up with around happiness is quite different from what I think we're led to believe. So I define happiness as being able to ride the wave of every emotion that life throws at you, knowing that you can come out the other side just a little better than what you were before because you have the right skills, the right resources, and the right support structure around you to make that happen. And so with that definition, that definition is what empowered me to then look at how I created a, a system that enabled people to learn those skills 
And so I look at it, you know, as a as a skill set. Like if we can learn a, a foundational skill set um, that enables us to experiment and to get on the mat every day, as I say, it's a lot like yoga, this happiness practice. We will find that we will be able to inject more joy into each day. So that's what I would say. So define happiness. And the second thing um, on your terms, the second thing I would do is that's really helpful if you don't know what happiness looks like for you. I do a little exercise in my workshops as a starter, which people love. Go through your mobile phone and scroll back through all the photos that you have and just pull out three or four photos of things that make you happy. They could be moments in time, anything that puts a smile on your face. And that is a basis for you identifying the things that bring joy to your life. Sweet. And then ask yourself how often you're doing those things. Because what we find is more often than not, those are the things that are sidelined by our pursuit of productivity. Yeah, we Productivity has become our disease. We're, the busy epidemic, as I call it, is part of the problem for the reason or the reason why so many of us struggle to connect in with what makes us happy because we're, we're too busy and we're not connected to how we feel anymore. So many people that I speak to don't know how they feel because they've become so good at suppressing feelings and feeling every minute of every day that they, they don't know in their body what things feel like anymore. Sorry, that was a bit of a tangent. No, that's all right. That, I mean, but that, that's sad that, and as a society, we've ended up in that space where we can't feel, we can't, we, we don't really understand our emotions. We don't get to really express our emotions because of that busyness aspect. And, you know, productivity, I think, has been warped over the years to become mm -hmm. busyness. And, and realistically, productivity is around what you accomplish. It's not what you do. So it's been able to go, okay, I accomplished that one and that one and that one, rather than going, I've done this much work today. Because they're very different, yeah. very, very different. I mean, I talked to my dad who, who owned a farm and maybe busy all day for 13 hours a day, 365 days a year. And I'm like, okay, were you happy with what you accomplished every day? And he said, when I look back at it, no. I said, there was a lot of time just keeping busy. It's, you just kind of fell into that wow. trap of, I'm a farmer, I've got to do something. And so, you know, really interesting to kind of see his reflection now, you know, many years after he's retired to, to think back to what was, what was my life like on the, as on the farm? Was I really that happy? I didn't think he was, he is now. He loves what he does now. So it's interesting. Um, I say often that our focus on doing has compromised our state of being. And the problem is that we don't, we have, we've deprioritized being. And by being, I'm not talking about Zen mindfulness, you know, sitting there meditating every day. I'm talking about um, being in a moment, um, being connected with nature, uh, being bored. And the sad part is that that, that that lack of being, like we were speaking about earlier, means that our brain does not have the opportunity to recharge and refresh. And there is a whole host of neuroscience that shows that our brain does its best work in default network mode, which only kicks in when we're in boredom. Mm. And yet so many of us now see boredom as a bad thing and we constantly avoid it. 
which means that our brain doesn't go into default network mode and it means that the dots don't connect in the same way. And that's why you get your best ideas in the shower because there's nothing else going on, right? That's where your brain starts to problem solve in a way that you can't when every minute of every day is full. Fascinating. I like that insight. We we were talking uh, actually offline. We did quite a, we did we sort of tapped into a few things before we started this conversation, and one of those things was around New Zealanders being a lot around pioneering, um, mm. exploring, etc. And so I want to know why you think leaders must transform from being an expert into an experimenter. Oh, you have done your homework. <laughs> oh. Again, I think it goes back to, um, it's more a legacy. You know, I think what happens is that we've, um, we've created this idea that leaders are meant to be all knowing. Yeah. And, and as an expert, you should therefore have the answers. That's what we pay you for to have the answers. But what I have learned through my journey and I have had the good fortune to surround myself with some unbelievable entrepreneurs who have had massive success. Um, a lot of them at a very young age and it has allowed me having worked with leaders at very senior levels in corporations and now working with and having very close friendships with these entrepreneurs that are massively successful to reframe what makes an amazing leader and the biggest difference that I can find is that the leaders in these fast growth entrepreneurial companies are completely open to experimentation. And I, what, I, what I know from my time in large corporations is that experimentation is certainly not encouraged to the same extent um, because often experimentation can lead to failure. And so um, that is why I'm kind of very passionate about being an experimenter rather than an expert, because with experimentation comes um, trying new things, which means that we reshape or look at the world through a different lens. We challenge the belief system that we have and start to ask ourselves, what if I was wrong about that? When we know, you know, so much of what we believe to be true is based on a sample size of one, which from a research perspective is statistically unsound. And often we convince ourselves that our beliefs are facts. And so this idea of experimentation challenges us daily as leaders to unlearn, to try new, and to be, I think, more creative, more curious, more innovative, all the things that corporations say that they want link back to this being an experimenter rather than being an expert. Because I think when we call ourselves an expert, in many ways, without even realizing it, it shuts down parts of our brain. Because it's like, well, I'm an expert, you know, I'm, I'm great at this, so I'm all knowing. And so therefore, um, our ability to step outside of our comfort zone and step into something completely different or challenge ourselves about being wrong is perhaps not something that we do very often. It's interesting, makes me think back. And, and for those who are listening in right now, we're, it's in the middle of October and um, 2020. Last week, I 
<laughs> launched my third business. <laughs> and so I'm currently owning three, which is uh, quite a fascinating thing to be sitting. Everyone's going, oh, you know, you should focus on one thing. I'm like, well, I am focusing on one thing, but I'm doing it through three businesses. But it's really interesting on on the first day that we announced that, you know, a CEO, a managing partner of, of the business. Someone asked me, though, I said, how are you going to lead? And I said, well, the thing I've learned over life and I'm going and this is the one thing that you've got to do as a leader. And that is I'm going to make myself redundant every three months. So I have to create something new every three months and, and then and along that way, allow someone else to learn it as well so I can step away and do something else. And what was fascinating is we got asked that first day, do you have a team that can facilitate and lead programs in Latin America? Now, Latin America obviously speaks Portuguese and Spanish. And yes, we've got great facilitators and we know how our systems work and we run, you know, from tech right through. And we said, yes. And now we're, <laughs> now we're in an experimentation phase because now we've got to learn out, okay, can we transfer what we can do in English to Spanish and pull it off? And this is with a big Fortune 100 company, so we're not mucking around. <laughs> so this is my big experiment at the moment. How can I make myself redundant every three months? And how can I put myself in a position where we can go global um, at a, a quicker than what we probably planned, but by just going, yes, we can, and figuring it out? Oh, I'm looking, yeah. so it's going to be fun. But that's the other thing that's fascinating to me. I love that. But... You know, I remember my time, as I say, my time in, in large corporations, and I still work with them now, but the way that these companies are kind of culturally modelled is based on managing and mitigating risk. And so think about that. You know, if your whole business is based on managing and mitigating risk, then failure is not perhaps encouraged <laughs> under that model in terms of a mindset. And experimentation is considered a risk. A big risk um, but then there is companies like there are there are companies out there that fundamentally play in this space that are big companies and it's proven to be you know the kind of cornerstone of their success and Atlassian is a brilliant example of this you know they have ship it days where they actually encourage their staff to pursue their passions around how they would grow and develop the business yeah. and they dedicate a month a quarter to actually getting them to showcase their ideas and then support them if their ideas are voted to actually put things into place. And it's been a phenomenal success for them in terms of the product solutions it's created, but equally the loyalty in their people. People love working there because they are celebrated for their experimentation. Mm, love it, it's good. Can have, we can talk about all day around um, experimentation and pioneering and innovation. Um, I love that sort of stuff. When we increase our focus while living in a world with distractions, so how, how do we, how do we, especially right now, like it's been a fascinating year, like at the beginning we had COVID hit and everyone kind of fell into this space where they got busy, actually really busy really quick and they all thought they were productive and they were riding this wave of adrenaline, which you know, for those that understand the physiology will know that it doesn't last that long and there's going to be a point where it crashes down. So that, that phase where it kind of starts to wear off, where it's the novelty factor that's kicked in. So we're able to focus a bit more because it's all really exciting. 
But when that novelty comes off and we start to lose our focus, how do we ensure that we stay, we can refocus when there are so many other distractions going on? Mm. It's, this is the, it's the, the first skill that we teach when we teach intentional adaptability is how to focus in a world that is designed to distract you. And um, where do you start? I'm a big fan, I'm a hacker, right? So the whole point of hacking is to give people little things like tiny little hacks that will help them make a shift if they practice them um, daily. The first thing that I advocate, because what I observed, especially in COVID life, as we now know it, was people took their busy from the professional world and they just transferred it into their home life. So not a, like things changed. Yes, you had to homeschool and, you know, and you're all working from home and all of that. But the level of busy was just transferred. I don't think people shifted that. Mm. Like you say, it was, I think if anything, it was amplified because people were worried about losing their jobs. So they got busier because they're like, well, I need to show that I'm valuable. You know, if I'm busy, I'm valuable, which I think is a complete misnomer. And so the first thing that I challenge people um, to do, because I, I have a, my theory is busy equals bullshit. And so through the work that I've done in the space of busy with thousands of people in some of the biggest companies in the world, I have discovered that busy more often than not is code for something else. Because busy as a word contains no useful information in terms of me understanding what's really going on with you. So I decided to unpack what the codes were and that then enabled me to say, well, here's where the problem lies. And so how do we address it? And so what we found busy is code for is anxiety. I'm feeling anxious and overwhelmed. Um, distraction. I feel completely and utterly distracted. And again, that's leading to overwhelm as well. Um, loneliness, self-validation. I need to say I'm busy, otherwise I'm not important or people might not think that I'm good enough at my job. Um, or FOMO, if I don't say yes to every opportunity that presents itself, I might miss the big one. But of course, what is the cost of saying yes to everything? Often it's the things that light you up and bring you joy, sadly. And so what I advocate is one, understand next time you use the word busy, what are you really saying, right? And so awareness is the first step to change. And that's why I'm talking about busy. Yeah. So if you're not aware of what the problem is, you cannot change it. So ask yourself when you say you're busy, what are you really saying? And that starts to help unlock a problem or a challenge. The second, and the thing is, if that's what you're really saying in your head, ask yourself why you're not saying it aloud. Unpack it. Because that's interesting in itself. And I'll guarantee you it links back to a fear of some sort in terms of some people thinking something about you. The second thing I would advocate is, as I said, busy equals bullshit. And so to that end, the language you use will determine your ability to make change. And so I give people the busy equals bullshit challenge. And what I say is for one week, remove the word busy from your vocabulary. Don't use it. Now you can either not use it and um, at all, or you can swap it out for something else, but it's got to be a positive constructive. So I did this two years ago. And I've never looked back. Um, and so what you will find is that when you stop using the word busy, I instead placed in its, um, in its space positively engaged. So what would happen with people would come up to me and they would say to me, hey, how are you doing? And I'd be like, 
I'm positively engaged. And like, it sounds a bit, you know, fluffy and whatever, but the thing is people would stop dead in their tracks. Whereas when someone says to you, I'm busy in response to how are you, it's a conversation closer, it's not an opener. But when I would not say that, it would put people in shock because they were expecting me to say I was busy. It's the default position. Mm. If you're not busy, then what are you doing? So I would say my life is full, but I'm doing things that I love. Very good. And so what it did, it changed the dynamic of conversations that I had. It made people intrigued around why I was not using the word busy. And often they would then say, I'm going to try that. So it would challenge them to do the same. And I could not get over how much noise it reduced in my head. Because when you tell yourself you're busy, it's like continuing to run on the hamster wheel. Telling yourself you're busy makes your mind go faster. And that's not helpful either. So there are a couple of little hacks that I would try. I like it. So you've recently put out a a new book. Uh, Can you tell Mm -hmm. us a little bit about the new book and what people can find when they when they find when they look for it on the bookshelves or online on Amazon, etc. Yeah, so um, the book was some, was a dream. It was something I always wanted to do, and so we pitched the idea to a couple of publishers, and lo and behold, within a week, I had two book deals on the table, which was a bit of a surprise, to be honest. And that was in November last year. And then they said, "Well, we want you to write the book by March." So. Um, I spent three months in monk mode writing the book and would you believe <laughs> the Friday before lockdown I finished <laughs> and then they go, you're in lockdown. I'm like, what? <laughs> now you can't but promote I wanted it. to write, uh, but you know what? It's, it's an irony because I don't think there could be a better time for a book like this. So I wrote the book as a means, not a book to read cover to cover in, you know, a three day sitting. The book is basically this nav it's a navigation tool. And so the whole book is designed as a means for you to define happiness on your terms and then learn how to experiment to realize more of that in every day. So it's full of case studies, it's full of personal stories, it's full of science to back. Um, the theories and the methodologies in the book. And then it's full of really practical hacks and experiments for you to start working this out for yourself. And so that's why I wrote it. I wanted to give people a means to explore their own happiness on their terms. Brilliant. And what's it called? Hacking happiness. Very good. Just want to make sure listeners remember that one. (laughs) We all know. It's Sorry, you go. No, 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 go, go. Well, it's just, you know, it's so um, it's so interesting. The last year has been such a fascinating time, but in many ways, um, I always think I would never change things because, you know, it, everything that happens gets you to where you are today. And two weeks ago, um, I realised a dream and I wonder if this would have ever happened if we weren't in a pandemic. And it, when I started this journey into being an entrepreneur, I was always a huge admirer, as most professionals are, of the Harvard Business Review. And so when I started out, I was like, you know, I know I've made it if I ever get to write for the Harvard Business Review. Like that was like a dream that was kind of put it out there in the ether. And then lo and behold, two weeks ago, Harvard want to write a piece on happiness and they saw my book and the editor reached out and I'm writing my first piece for the Harvard Business Review. So you just... Never know when you put these ideas out into the world how um, chaos and crazy can actually lead to opportunities that you just never envisaged perhaps were possible. Ah, it's awesome. I love it. 
We all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? <laughs> for the first time? I do things for the first time all the time. I'm just trying to, oh, you know what's funny? I've done a lot of things lately that I've gone back to that I haven't done for a long time that make me feel uncomfortable. Um, I've signed up for something in the last couple of days for the first time. What have I done? Oh, um, I started um, studying a course on neuroscience, a free online course at Harvard on neuroscience. And um, I'm a big advocate of micro bravery. So doing one of the things I teach people is to do small things every day that make you feel uncomfortable. And I live and breathe the stuff that I teach. Otherwise, who would I be to teach it? And so signing up for that course was extremely uncomfortable because I love the science behind understanding human behavior and how the brain works. But I don't know, I've always had a fear of scientists because they seem so smart. <laughs> and so therefore I've always kind of, I know this sounds silly, but I've always kind of been like, science is not my thing. I'm not good at it. Um, but I have an absolute fascination for neuroscience. So that is something completely new. Um, and I also signed up for drawing classes when COVID first hit. And, um, you know, my best drawing is a stick figure. Um, but I do little things like that cool. all the time because, um, I, as I say, I think that when we lean into these discomforts, especially when we have limiting beliefs around, oh, that's not me, that's not who I am, you know, it, it's a game changer because the only reason we think that that's not who we are is because that's what we tell ourselves. Mm. And I want to prove myself wrong. <laughs> good, 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 good. What is the one question that you would love to solve? Oh. Oh, this is, I got goosebumps thinking about this. Why the government doesn't prioritize the happiness of their people at the same level that they prioritize the productivity of the country? Great question. Very and good. And that only came into my mind off the back of a question that I was asked yesterday around something similar. And I thought to myself, maybe it's time to go into politics. <laughs> <laughs> good luck with that one. For you, what is your definition of living an extraordinary life? I, I immediately I go define extraordinary tell me what you mean by extraordinary oh, this is your opportunity to define that one <laughs> well I perhaps wouldn't use that word instead of using that word I would um, and this is not a word I would have even used 12 months ago um, but I would say define living a life in alignment. I love the word alignment um, because extraordinary to me perhaps speaks a little bit more to um, the masculine side of, you know, success and um, extraordinary. You know, I think of Einstein, for example, when I think of extraordinary. And for me, you know, I don't aspire to be Einstein. I aspire to live a life in alignment 
to the things that truly matter to me. And so if you said to me, define a life lived in alignment, I would say I'm pretty there. Um, but it's taken me six years of damn hard work to come back to where I started in terms of a life that's in alignment with human connection, positively impacting the lives of others, being present and in a moment and sharing experiences. And whilst my life is not perfect, nor do I aspire to have it perfect, it's pretty aligned to having those things in each day. And that makes me happy. That is the very good answer. And so what I was looking forward to, something different, because it always throws everyone a curveball, the extraordinary word, uh, which is good. Uh, Penny, you've shared some great insights today, and obviously you're doing some incredible things in the world of happiness. How can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you? Yeah, so you can find out all about the work that we do on hackinghappy.co. Um, but I tend to hang out predominantly on LinkedIn. If you want to connect with me on LinkedIn, I always love that. Um, you'll find me, Penny Lacasso. And the other space that I've started to hang out only in the last month or so, we um, decided to create a Facebook group called the Hacking Happy Collective um, only six weeks ago. And I've been completely blown away that over 600 people from all around the world have jumped on board with that without any real promotion other than a little bit of sharing on social media. Um, so if you're interested in um, hanging out with what I term unlike minds, people who challenge you to look at the world through a different lens and find ways to hack your happiness, then come on over and join the group and hang out there. Uh... Very good. Penny, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today, um, talking about living on the farm and spending time exploring through the forest to finding yourself after a 16 year career in Shell, going, there's, there's, there's gotta be something different in my life and figuring that out. And I just love the aspect where you want to just experiment and you're kind of a pioneer where you're like, okay, well, someone's looking at it this way. I'm gonna flip it upside down and look at it that way. And that's a real special trait in someone. And so I acknowledge you for your ability to stick out, step outside your comfort zone, challenge the perceptions of the world and create something that is shifting people's minds. And we're seeing that through the work that you're doing, the stages that you're standing on. And, and obviously now I'm sure this book is going to um, land in a lot of people's lounge rooms and a lot of people's uh, when they get back to fly again on their laps when they're flying around the world. So just thank you so much for sharing your insights. And I just love your answers to the really challenging questions at the end there. Um, it speaks wonders to the person you are and the change that you're making in the world. So Penny, thank you very much. Oh, I feel namaste, Craig. Like, it was just beautiful. Thank you. What a, a lovely conversation. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to an enjoyable conversation with Penny Lacasso, hacking happiness on the Active CEO podcast. Now, most people, when they get ready for a new year, will set a whole lot of goals. A friend of mine taught me a couple of years ago, um, Sam Cawthorn, you know, instead of choosing goals, to choose a word that keeps you in alignment for the year. And for 2020, it was all about focus. And so for me, I was able to really change my focus and narrow it down so that I could focus on high performance leadership. You know, I was able to step out from 
a CEO role, which I was enjoying, but it wasn't really connected to my heart. And, you know, what was interesting is people go, well, how are you focusing when you've got three businesses? Well, when all three businesses are aligned, it's very, very easy to focus. And they are all focused on one thing, just slightly different ways. I've gone deep in the way that I focus on high performance leadership. So I can cater for you know, individual high performers. I can cater for sport coaches and high performance staff. And I can also cater for companies in that same narrow focus. Because you know, what's really interesting is as a, as a human beings, we don't have an ideas problem. We can all come up with ideas. What we, the problem we have is we have a focus problem. And so what's important is that we able to narrow that focus and go deep on something and do it really, really, really well. Now for 2021, my word is partnerships. And it kind of kicked off early where I partnered up with Sam Cawthorn. We launched Speakers Institute Corporate back in October the 14th, uh, which was really, really exciting. That is going so well. And, you know, with all that's happened in 2020 with COVID and uncertainty and crisis, the thing that's really stood strong for me is that partnerships and collaboration are going to be the way forward for businesses. And so, you know, I can really see that those that really dive into collaborations and partnership will foster great growth, will see new opportunities, will be able to handle tougher situations easier. And I can tell you now that having a a partner in business has made a massive difference for me in the way that I feel confident as a as a CEO, as an entrepreneur, to make decisions and to really, really step out and and have belief in everything that we do. Uh, this is really awesome. So I'm going to encourage you to find your word for 2021. What is that one word that is going to keep you on track? that is gonna remind you of what's really important for the year. Um, and you know, place it on your phone. Uh, for me, I have a photo of an eye on my phone in 2020, which um, symbolizes focus. Um, you may put it on your wall, you could put it somewhere else. Um, but what's important is that you need to be able to refer back to that one word every single day and make sure you are in line with it, you're staying true to it, and that you're doing it every single day. And what I'd love you to do is pop your word into one of our social media posts that connect with this podcast episode. It'd be awesome just to see, you know, what, what word each person's having. So let's get through 2021 together. Uh, if you need someone to hold you accountable, help you gain clarity and ask you those tough questions and, and maybe even narrow your focus to get your word for 2021, then uh, please contact me at craig at nrg, the number two, perform.com or click on the contact page of craigjohns.com.au website. You know, thank you so much for for listening uh, to this episode and being a part of Active CEO podcast in 2020. It's been a real pleasure to be serving you and to bring you some amazing interviews and also, you know, diving deep into Break the CEO Code with you as well. I'm Craig Johns. This is the Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong. Join the active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com.
That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.